You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 173 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to discuss in loose terms ideology, which is a system of ideas and especially ideals that form the basis of economic and or political theory and policy. In other words, it is ideology that becomes the dogma that we all surround ourselves with. From you know forms of government all the way to how we greet each other. I guess the term culture could also be used, you know, dogma, ideology, culture. I knew it! It don't matter what kind of dog food it is, folks. <laughs> it just tastes like shit. Before I start this episode, I want to play a short sample from a talk Terence McKenna gave to the staff at the Esalen Institute in 1998, followed by samples from speeches by Martin Luther King, George W. Bush, and Charles Manson. And all three of these leaders represent their own ideologies, be they good or bad. But first, we hear from Terence. If the 20th century taught us anything, it taught us the toxic nature of ideology. The excesses of the left led to the Holocaust. The excesses of the right led to um, the, the pogroms and mass trials of Stalinist Russia. The excesses of the Cultural Revolution in China, the suppression of uh, dissent, uh, 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 in many parts of the world. So uh, there, there is a need to abandon ideology, which is really a postmodern position, and it's very uncomfortable. The absence of closure is a post-juvenile stance toward being that few people in the past ever lived long enough to grow comfortable with. You know, if you died at age 40, culture as a con game lasts long enough to keep you entranced up until sometime in midlife. If you live beyond midlife and you still are fascinated and entranced by culture, chances are you're an idiot of some sort. <laughs> I mean, I mean, is this not obvious, you know? I mean, after the... Uh, so, this, this is why, I mean, marketing has shrewdly understood this. This is why we are folded back toward the idolization of youth, because it's an idolization of cluelessness. Uh, you know, it's not the firm body and the quick step that the marketers are interested to sell you. It's innocence. But I innocence are people you love to play poker with if you are uh, sufficiently cynical. And believe me, the, the market forces are sufficiently cynical. So uh, assimilating to the future means living not 
with no ideology whatsoever or with uh, and people say well can one live without ideologies isn't the belief we should uh, um, you know strive for peace and justice and ideology I don't think so I think these are provisional models of behaviors that derive from immediate practical concerns that can be revised in real time constantly held up to the incoming flow of data and adjusted that's why the concept model is somewhat you know if Lenin had said he had a model if Hitler had said he had a model I think it would have played out with a little more soft conclusions than to say you know a new truth is proclaimed and the behaviors which derive from it are uh, incontrovertible so no no ideological closure and I don't know how you feel about this I'm very comfortable with it I, I was passionate about ideology in my youth I've had most of them you know at at 11 I was reading Mein Kampf and Festung Europa sound like a very good idea I loved all that pseudo Egyptian um, overscale tasteless architecture and all that stuff folk dancing and uh, summer camping sounded attractive at 17 I was a Marxist you know ready to go to the barricades for the workers state at 22 we marched under the black flag of anarchy used to bust up meetings of Trotskyites and write graffiti on their front doors and make life hell for those people now I don't give a shit and I feel much better about it to thank you uh, I mean I think we should try strive for a sane and caring world that gives as many people as much choice to express themselves as possible beyond that I don't feel any kind of an imperative uh, going along with this idea of living without uh, uh, ideology is the idea that there is no longer any consensus reality and this one is imp maybe more important to me than to you because as an intellectual with a, an agenda an idea a revelation at times in my career it seemed to me that what I was supposed to do was convert everyone to my viewpoint of course this is preposterous very few people are able to do that no one is ever able to entirely succeed with that now I see that we all live in our own private Idaho and the and all you can really do is ride the range and mend the fences but you're not going to push the ranch out to uh, both coastlines uh, so and then how to view other people's realities well I view it as private property not to be violated by me I'm a trespasser I have a dream one day
even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream to be. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings. But they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel. But they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. They don't have the intelligence to change. Once you get them hump, they go hump the rest of their life. Huh? Huh? They'll do that for a paycheck. Huh? Huh? You tell them, don't do that no more. And they go, huh? Huh? There's no communication. Tell them, I tell them, stop doing that. And they'll go, huh? Huh? I said, stop it. And they'll go, huh? And you cut them someone's fucking throat and throw blood in their face. And they'll go, huh? Huh? And you see what I'm saying? In other words, there's just no intelligence, man. The human race has suffered enslavement for thousands of years. The pharaoh, the emperor, the president... You know, regardless of the form it appears in, there are always the leaders, the rulers, the heads of state. Or uh, are these kings and queens perhaps dead weight? People recall when, you know, at least older people that were alive, you know, they recall where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And for you younger kids, you know, maybe you recall where you were when September 11th happened when New York was attacked. Uh, but where were they? And, you know, where were you when, when, when you came under attack? And when you capitulated? At what point was your mind sedated? And when did dreams become overrated? See, you know, it happens to us all. We, we, we fall into the way things are. The way things have been, always have been, always will be. Uh, you know, who do you want to be? And why should you need to know? You know, a career is not in the end what you are. But you know, sooner or later, the dogma must be accepted, even if it's made up of you know probably and maybe. Um, it's it's difficult to go forward into the unknown, you know. But the universe is, at least as things are now, unknowable. So how can we find out about something that is constantly changing and something that is, is unknown? And we ourselves, you and I, we are in a continuous transformation. But are we shaping ourselves or are we being shaped? Growing up 
I experienced uh, society as finished. That was my perception of society that it's finished, you know. And that's how it was well, that's how it was presented to me. You know, everything was known and complete and it seemed that the general consensus was that the way things are is how it should and will continue to be. And you and I, we are the citizens and this is our place. We are the cogs in the machine, the bricks in the wall. But is a wall always solid? Society is solid, its laws are fixed. At least that's how I was told, you know, the laws are carved in stone. But it's not solid, it's not fixed. Society, the world and the universe, it's fluid. In the words of quantum physicist David Bohm, the universe is an unending transformation in flux whose previous states we are not privileged to know. All that facts should be is an opinion generated from a personal and direct experience of some sort and it should never be deemed law or dogma, never decreed. If we do that we naturally give away any responsibility of finding things out for ourselves. So please be aware that no matter how sure or how preachy or how authoritarian I might sound in this episode. All I am saying is just something I am saying. You gotta figure out your own thing. All I can do is inspire you to go down the same rabbit hole as I have (laughs) or another. You know, as a race, the human race, we are still, in my opinion, grabbing hold onto our mother, which is the Earth. And we're trying to find answers with a telescope or a microscope. I want to quote 16th century German alchemist Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettensheim. Or Nettesheim, maybe. Anyway, he said, All sciences are nothing else but the ordinances and opinions of men, as noisome as profitable, as pestilent as wholesome, as ill as good, in no part perfect, but doubtful and full of error and contention. By spending our time discovering everything in the world around us, we as a mass forget to look for the most important thing, ourselves. I think this is the behavior of a child. This is what a child does when it walks into this world. It starts discovering and eventually the child grows up. And I would like to think that we are in this phase now. It is true that I see the enslaved world as a childish world. I mean, modern society is childish. But I'm not accusing the entire human race of being childish. I perceive more the current state of affairs to be a childish affair. And and what I see is a child playing a game and somehow forgetting that it is only a game. Must we reach death before we understand this? I have a point to all this, you know. And I hope you're following my train of thought because I'm trying to lead up to something. But before we continue, let's for clarity... For the sake of clarity, let's define the word slavery. A dictionary would define a slave as a person who is the legal property of another or others and bound to absolute obedience. 
or a helpless victim to or of some dominating influence like alcohol or drugs. You know, you can be a slave to cigarettes. When uh, looking at reality, you know, at our civilization that we are living in, it is not difficult to see the resemblance between the feudal society of the Middle Ages and the forced obligations of modern society. And I'm not trying to exaggerate, you know. I only share what I see, feel. I don't talk about facts set in stone, because no one can do that. We can only present ideas. For instance, there is democracy, which you must agree upon, then taxation and money, which you must both pay and earn, and finally there is the law, which you must obey. Although none of this is like real slavery, is it? There's no whips, no shackles, no cotton fields, there aren't any crosses burning, you know. But slavery is sophisticated. We are in accordance with the definition of a slave, the legal property of another. And who is this other but the state? And the state is us, in a sense. So we have enslaved ourselves. Slavery is a drug also. We are addicted to it. I do not think this is big news to anybody who's tried to view society from the perspective of an outsider. You know, the alienated always see things. Not that they are better people, but what I'm saying is said by an outsider, which is, I am an outsider, so there will always be some sort of subconscious bias on my part for people who are outsiders. Anyway, is there a need to whine about all this shit when people are starving in Africa? You know, we have it pretty good here in the modern Western world, if that's where you're listening from. That's where I'm speaking from, anyway. And yes, we should whine about it, because just because there are starving people in the world, that's why we should whine. You know, how long has there been suffering in this world? For how many years have we had unnecessary wars? Is 5,000 years an understatement? Also, and I've said it before on the podcast, the reason we in the West have it so good is because people somewhere else have it so bad. The causality of existence cannot be ignored any longer. If there is a king, there must be a subject. It goes without saying. One thing that is for sure, apathy is a killer drug if you're into totalitarianism. Steal that, kill them, sell it over here through the TV and whisper in their dreams, you are nothing and nothing can you do. But we can do something. I've already mentioned some of the forced obligations we have, like taxation and law. But there is also patriotism and tradition in a sense. Things that are not really decreed by any government, but which are shackles that we have placed upon ourselves. Our culture as a whole is nothing but a bunch of habits. All of which form a reality I call the professed reality. And you can abbreviate that as PR. And PR seems to be the professed reality's main objective as well. And the reason I call it professed reality is because that is all it is. And anyone who is trying to tell you or sell you 
otherwise are probably knowingly or unknowingly working for the state in some form, be it as a taxpayer or as a hired goon. The state, according to me anyway, is a bodiless entity constructed of a mixture of collective ethics, dogmas, ideologies and beliefs that we have amassed over the years. And a fascist regime cannot be properly overthrown unless it is from within. Literarily from within the people being ruled, you know. Not from within the state, but from within the people the state is made up of, you know, us. Because we are granting the power. We are all Uncle Tom. I cannot understand blind acceptance. Is it safer than walking boldly into the unknown? Not sure. What can really replace direct experience? In my opinion, nothing. A day is normally monotonous. Slavery is comfortable. And monotony is comfortable. In Hollywood films, the hero always lives and dies screaming about freedom. And we love to see a hero fight for freedom, but rarely do we fight ourselves. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Is the belief in the PR, in the professed reality, so overpowering that we don't do this, you know? Is the fear of becoming alienated or an outsider, is that a deterrent? Are we overly content, you know, too distracted by our content existence? If we consider the most essential essence of what life should be, then is it Not that it should be free, but not just any life, you know, my life and your life. It should be free. It is an issue I find impossible to ignore. And how could anyone? If we are not fully free, then what the fuck is the point? It is an insult to the spirit of Spartacus not to object. I now want to play this short sample from the 1969 film Easy Rider that deals with the concept of freedom. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're going to cut their throat or something, man? They're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. 
but they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No. It makes them dangerous. We defined slavery earlier, you know, and basically it's the legal property of another. And what about freedom? Freedom is defined uh, as personal liberty, non-slavery, independence of fate and necessity, liberty of action and, and as the right to do. You know, it's the opposite of slavery. Once the path towards freedom has been chosen, you know, all other paths are seen as roads towards hell and further enslavement. When I perceived that right to be, then all else became like dust in the wind. You know, I I will not uh, force others how to lead their lives, but please, Mr. Government, let me lead my own. What what is it to you? Once you start going towards freedom, you know, all other roads are roads towards hell and further enslavement. Once you perceive that concept of living free, everything else becomes bad. And I would not and I will not force others how to lead their lives, but I want to be able to lead my life the way I want to live it. But there are some things that always needs to be compromised. There are obligations and distractions. Things that, you know, even though I'm trying to live as free as I can, I am still not free. There have been many thousands of years of addiction to stupidity that we need to cease. Uh, or, uh, and if we don't, you know, we will probably find ourselves homeless. And I mean homeless as in without a planet. The biggest obstacles for a paradigm shift of consciousness, from my perspective, are, are the walls of distraction that tower up all around us. These walls make it difficult to even begin to question whether the current direction we're in really is the best one to take. And whatever the masses consider sane or normal is in fact insane and abnormal. And sometimes, most often actually, immoral. I don't have to give examples. Uh, If you follow the news spewing out of the media machine and... You know, what do you get served on a daily basis? Well, it's war, famine, disease, murder, rape, inflation and fraud and so on and so forth. When the insanity created by our society, by our culture is questioned, as I'm questioning it right now, the questioning party, me, is seen as someone that is not normal, that is not sane. That's a common side effect. This is, this is the situation we have created for ourselves. Society has misplaced our individuality. It has replaced nature with parks. Made traditions silent laws. And when one wall falls in Germany, another rises in Israel. And we repeat ourselves over and over again. And then, as I said, there are the walls towering up, upwards within our own society. Walls that are distractive. And most of us 
think that these walls are actually helpful. But I like to, that's the reason I call them walls is because I want you to visualize them as walls. Democracy is one, money another, patriotism, taxation, and so on. They're all walls of distraction. And I will briefly bring up a few of these walls one at a time. And together, in the most fractal sense, they form the PR, the professed reality, which is the title of this episode. So I guess everything I have said so far has been an introduction to the meat of the matter. So let's begin. Democracy. What is democracy? The actual word is compromised of the two Greek words, demos and kratien, people to rule. This basically means that the people are in charge and they exercise their powers through their elected agents using an electoral system. I guess it's Abraham Lincoln who said it best in his Gettysburg Address delivered in 1863. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Although often used together with freedom, democracy has nothing to do with freedom. Although some sort of pseudo-free society is necessary, but not essential, in order for democracy to at least partially function. There are really two forms of democracy. Direct democracy, where the citizens directly voice their opinions regarding public decisions. And then there is representative democracy, when the citizens elect officials to make these public decisions for them. And this latter form is the most widespread. Democracy also means that the people are governed by the majority. And even though the minority is protected by laws and statutes, it is still, regardless of what is said, under the command of the majority. Individual freedom is irrelevant since a democratic agreement can only be made if the disagreeing minority conforms to the decision of the majority. How can society ever be sure that the majority are those that possess reason. Do we really need democracy if society is reasonable? How can reason not be reasonable? And what is reasonable? Free will in a land of freedom, perhaps. Maybe that's reasonable. Do we have this anywhere in the world? Not really. If democracy is is a form of government where we have all authority, then do we? Is it not totalitarianism in disguise? Isn't it enslaved freedom? It's kind of like those. There, there were certain slaves in the days of the cotton fields in the United States. Some people who had been slaves for so long that they didn't even need to tie them up. You know, they just stayed picking cotton willingly you know 
and they accepted their situation in life. Enslaved freedom. Democracy is doomed to fail in a society where the people have time to sit back and think, sit back and question and finally rise up and object. Therefore, democracy must keep us lazy. We trust it blindly. Even to question democracy is a sin. Just try it. Tomorrow at work or next time you meet some friend, tell them that you think democracy is stupid and watch what they say. You can't question democracy. It's a sin. Democracy is not immortal and it's certainly not moral it is not the final step of our governing evolution. It's one of the first. We are not a stupid evil race. We are only young and therefore we are immature. There is nothing wrong with this as long as we eventually grow out of this pubescent phase. There are so many of us right now in the world that we just have to get along as one people or we will destroy ourselves. Despite all the horrors in the world, the news is only a viewpoint that can be angled, enhanced or edited and it regularly is. Therefore, the best thing to do is to travel. See these places for yourself. See if there are really dangers out there. Travel off the path into the depths of the jungle. And often do you find another person there and he or she is a human just like you. There is very little to fear if you get used to the unknown. Look up into the night sky. Taxation is servitude. Taxation, in other words, means to register a person for the purpose of imposing tribute. Money or equivalent paid per periodically by prince or state to another in acknowledgement of submission or as a price for peace or protection. That's taxation. In medieval Europe, the feudal system was a relation between the vassal, the slave, and the superior. And the latter received funds or goods of value and in return provided protection. The difference between the feudal system and the modern scheme of taxation are minimal and purely bureaucratical. For example, if the, if the slave refused to pay the feudal lord, the result would probably be certain death. But these days, if a person refuses to pay tax, the result is death. Not death. And maybe prison. Do you see any freedom here? Or do you see phrases such as legal property of another? and bound to absolute obedience, which is the definition of slavery. If a government imposes such laws and regulations, regardless of how the government in question was elected, it is nothing but despotic. Freedom cannot coexist with slavery, that's a paradox. The argument that taxes pay for such things as healthcare and schooling does not take away the fact that there is no free will, there is no free choice. If there is not a free choice, then it is nothing but enforced. In addition, the government is also saying that Look, 
If you didn't pay tax, no one would support our hospitals, our schools, our safety. The citizens don't have a built-in morality. But we donate trillions of whatever currency you want to say, trillions every year to charities. We are already, as a human race, race showing governments that we do care. We are inherently moral and compassionate. People can work together. At the moment we do not need to work together because the government and its army of bureaucrats are managing everything for us in the same manner as a mother and father raises their offspring. You know, we are the babies of the state. The day always comes when a person grows up, leaves home and journeys outward into the world. In my opinion, I believe, wish and hope we are going through this phase at, as a human race right now. I am, at least. On the 10th of December 1948, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted and proclaimed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In Article 4, it states that no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. Taxation is servitude. The law is the claw. One of the most rigid and unquestionable forces in society is the law, and like a claw, it has got its grip on us all. But which law? The natural law governs our lives without the need for any external force. For instance, when to eat, sleep, and such things. When, when to take a crap. That's the natural law. The silent law governs what we feel is right and wrong, like helping those in need or that it's wrong to rape and murder, you know, nobody, for most people, nobody need to inform you of that, you know. Then there is the governmental law, whose function is to avoid chaos and disorder, that's what they say. In the excellent essay, Anarchism, what it really stands for, Emma Goldman writes, the most absurd apology for authority and law is that they serve to diminish crime, Aside from the fact that the state is itself the greatest criminal, breaking every written and natural law, stealing in the form of taxes, killing in the form of war and capital punishment, it has come to an absolute standstill in coping with crime. It has failed utterly to destroy or even minimize the horrible scourge of its own creation. She continues. Crime is not but misdirected energy. So long as every institution of today, economic, political, social and moral, conspires to misdirect human energy into wrong channels, so long as most people are out of place doing the things they hate to do, living a life they loathe to live, crime will be inevitable, and all the laws on the statues can only increase, but never do away with crime. It does not matter if murder or rape is illegal. It does not stop rapists and murderers from committing these crimes. A better society, a more free society, might lessen these crimes. Who knows? My point is that the natural and silent law, they're already there and will always be. The only laws we need. Any other law is inhumane, fascist and ultimately corrupt. What the PR tries to tell us is that we should not have moral values without the law. We would become savage beasts. But the law is a false consciousness. Nothing more. 
Individuality does not equal conflict. A society of individuals will by nature become a free society. What if my individual nature is to be a mother? Well, <laughs> that is an infantile argument. The only purpose of the law is to punish. Without law, no punishment. It is not the law that keeps us organized. The most important laws are not written, like being polite when meeting the friends of lovers or arriving when you said you were going to arrive and stuff like knowing that rape and murder is not something you should do. Most people know this. There are laws written about such acts as physically hurting others, yet they need not be written. The law only creates some sort of reformation and punishment circus around the criminal. It never aims to understand why such crimes happen in the first place. In a truly free society, we must acknowledge causality and act accordingly. We must naturally take responsibility for our free will, Without law, there can be no punishment, yes, but there will always be a consequence. Patriotism is selfish. A patriot or a nationalist is a person who defends or is passionate about his or her country's freedom and rights. But freedom and rights are the same all over the world. And even if they are not, they should be. Patriotic and nationalistic thinking is therefore restrictive, selfish and useless. Stupid, actually. Uh, to, if you reject patriotism, you basically reject yourself, the country, the fellow citizens, your origin. And who is willing to do this? Who can spit at his mother and father? Who can burn the very thing that represents the place of belonging, your flag? Because patriotism is a blanket that feels safe. It tells you who you are and what you are. It makes life easy. It is the way of the weak and not the hard. It is the path of separation, aggression and pride. Not love and harmony. It creates them and us. It becomes a line drawn between all men and women and beasts of the world. But it does some good, does it not? It protects culture, it unites citizens. You know, with the spirit of patriotism, wondrous tasks can be performed. It's like the heart and face of a nation. Well, many cultures have been destroyed in the name of patriotism. To name but one example, the ways of the Arctic indigenous Sami people, they have been severely suppressed in the name of a flag. Despite the efforts to rebuild the knowledge of these people and their shamans, it's dying. And we are losing important data about nature, about spirits, about our own, our own hearts. The image of the ignorant savage brute fits more with the man of the West than with any indigenous individual or community. Culture has nothing to do with patriotism. Culture can spring, die and become reborn from anything and anywhere, wherever there are people. You know, although patriotism may unite citizens, it does not unite the entire human race. And no fact or proof needs to be stated to verify this, I don't think. Uh, wondrous tasks can only truly be performed with the unified spirit of mankind. Flags do not need to wave for this to happen. The flag represents a conquest of war. And in the few cases that, that it does not, it still represents an elitist mentality. 
a person is only tied to a country out of birth, you know, where it took place and nothing more. That's all there is to it. If the world is round and nature is infinite in this universe without borders or boundaries, then how can a line be drawn? No one can own nature. It's for everyone, regardless of who puts his or her foot there first. You know, does the moon belong to the United States just because they stuck a flag there? Or does it belong to everyone and everything? It existed long before we did, and it will probably exist long after we are gone. Love, harmony, and respect for all mankind can only become a reality when every trace of separation is eradicated. Only then will bliss on earth become visible. Only then will wars begin to end. Only then can we laugh at the stupidity of our ancestors when they drew up their first symbols of patriotism. From death to death. Although it might be difficult as a child to question why dad dressed up as Santa Claus once a year, it's not impossible to make that uh, inquiry. But if you question money, you get an existential problem on your hands. Money has become a dream and an illusion. And this is the most dangerous thing, because it's very difficult to manifest a dream into matter unless you're talking about an artist. Sure, you can look at money, you can hold it, you can use it, but that's not what money is. Money is a representation of value, of work performed, nothing more. And in these modern times, money will probably soon become completely digitalized, so the see and touch aspect of money will also disappear eventually. Money is an old invention. It was the Song Dynasty, I believe, of China that first began using paper money instead of metals and coins. And this happened over a thousand years ago. And uh, all the bills were stamped with the seal of the emperor and he functioned as an early form of central bank. No one but him had the right to create money by punishment of death. And he directly controlled the amount of money that circulated in his kingdom. Marco Polo, he brought these ideas back to Europe, but they would not be employed for hundreds of years. Although paper money began appearing in the 13th century, but it wasn't until the 17th century that Stockholm Banco, a predecessor of the Bank of Sweden, issued the first proper European banknotes. So basically, in that's, if you think about it, money is like 300, 400, 400 years old. It's like, it's like quite new in the sense. I mean, the paper money I'm talking about now. How then did gold and silver and other valuable materials become transformed into paper? Well, the way it happened in Europe is similar to what happened in China. It began with the problem of weight and of robbers. It was not practical to carry large or even small amounts of valuables around, in particular gold, and the option to leave it hidden at home was out of the question. So, in China, the emperor solved the problem by taking control of all the gold and silver and other valuable materials and replaced them with paper money. But in Europe, it was an entirely different person that did this, namely the goldsmith. The goldsmith quickly figured out that they could hand out loans and lend more paper money than they actually had in gold inside their vaults. And this made them very rich and very powerful. 
but that's another story altogether. Even though it's interesting, but you can check that out for yourself. It's not about who is controlling who, but who is being controlled. People often focus on the Illuminata, the elite. You know, it's, it's not important who is controlling. It's important who is being controlled, and it's you that's being controlled. And how you know? Do you want to be controlled? If you don't want to be controlled, don't be. One of the greatest horrors in the world is that like every sixth, seventh person is suffering from starvation. For these people, food is priceless. The greatest re reward someone can give another is gratitude, love, health, and sustenance. In the end, these things have an immeasurable value. Much more than money, which is a promise made by a bank, controlled by a government that in turn is nothing but an elected institution that indulges in governance, which is the act, manner, or functioning of governing and controlling. Which is a promise made by a bank, controlled by a government that in turn is nothing but an elected institution that indulges in governance, which is the act, manner, or functioning of governing and controlling. Essentially, money is a signed document containing written promise to pay a stated sum to a specified person or to a bearer at a specified date or on demand. This means that money only represents the value of something else. Material goods, property or labor. The idea that a person should receive a reward for a job well done is understandable. But it is incomprehensible that the person should be rewarded with a promised value issued by a national bank. In fact, the idea of a bank is ludicrous. All a bank does, apart from issuing money, is managing the public debt, receiving revenues and keeping the government as its most important customer. Remember that when you buy something, you are only shifting around a promise made by a bank to eventually pay the value of that note, which a bank may promise to pay, but they never do. You cannot walk into a bank and say, hey, can you give me the value of this promissory note, of this paper money? They can't. They can only like exchange it to coins or something. They, they can't give you the value of it. Do you see? The current system usually also makes the act of destroying money illegal. But how can the destruction of an illusionary value be illegal? Especially if that very same illusionary value has been a reward given for a job well done. Is that reward not yours to do with as you wish? Is it not the owner who gives value to whatever is being owned? You know. I have an, a very expensive first edition book, you know, I value it, but somebody who can't read, they might use it for, you know, Tinder to make a fire. For argument's sake, let's quote Ayn Rand and her epic tome Atlas Shrugged, where one of her characters states, Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of men. 
It is not an unreasonable notion to be able to change the product of one's effort for the products of other people's efforts. But unfortunately, nothing is as simple as that since none of us yet live in any form of utopia. Therefore, money is useful, but money is not what we own. It owns us. It is not the result of our efforts. It's the driving force behind them. Somehow we've turned it all around, upside down. It is laziness and fear and nothing else that has caused the human race the greatest harm. Laziness and fear. If we still traded amongst ourselves with the products we produced instead of the much easier to handle promissory notes, then we might remember the value behind each product rather than become blinded by numbers. I do not or even try to imagine a world without money. We need to crawl before we can walk. When greed has been overcome, then we can talk about a moneyless society. But to live a life where money is just a tool and to use it as you might use toilet paper, that is indeed not difficult. And if you do that, it will change your life for the better. The less you crave money, the more money you get. It's it's weird, but it is true. If you crave money... You will always be suffering. That's also true. So fuck money. You know, money will come anyway. But don't be focused on it. Perception is everything. If we cannot see a chain, then how can we break it? Or why would we even want to? If we cannot see a wall, then how can we tear it down? Or do we feel overly content to do anything about any of it? I understand if you feel like that, but for me there are times when enough is enough. I know it! It don't matter what kind of dog food it is, folks! (laughs) It just tastes like shit! Let's summarize, and uh, I've been talking for a long time now, I hope you could follow what I said, or understand it, I hope you found it interesting. But let me summarize, and I could have said just this actually, but I wanted to give a bit of meat to it. But basically what I've been saying is the following. In a democracy, individual freedom is irrelevant. Taxation is servitude. The law does not give us our moral values. Patriotism is selfish. Tradition is a habit. Money is a tool, not a goal. And freedom does not need democracy, no more than love needs laws. So as regular listeners know, I've started recording myself in my car whilst driving, talking about various films that I enjoy and highly recommend. Time now for another The Moving Image in a Moving Vehicle. When I was a poor student, uh, I watched a lot of films. And I, in particular, there were three film directors that I spent my time watching every film they've ever made. 
and it was Alfred Hitchcock's catalog, Stanley Kubrick's catalog, and Akira Kurosawa's catalog. And uh, right now, I want to talk to you about a film by Akira Kurosawa. And for you, those of you who don't know, Akira Kurosawa is a Japanese film director. He made black and white films, and I love black and white films. I love the oldies. And um, he made an, an adaption of Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth. And he set it in a samurai universe in Japan. And the guy who plays Macbeth is Toshiro Mifun. And uh, this film is so beautiful in its coldness, in its blackness, in its depressing, depressingness, you know. If you want to see a happy, sunshiny film, don't watch this one. Throne of Blood. And Throne of Blood is one of my favorite films. And if you know the Macbeth story, you know, there's nothing new really to this film. You know, it follows the Macbeth plotline, which I won't get into right now. But uh, I just wanted to mention this film because it's, it's, uh, it's a really beautiful film. If you can find beauty in the bleak, dark and sinister as I can. Uh, what makes this there's, there's two scenes in this film in particular that stand out and sometimes for me you know a film can have it's enough if it has one great scene you know if it's if it's, if a film has only one purpose to lead the audience into a certain emotional or visual state for the time when a certain scene comes and that's the whole point of the film you know that is an experience experience in itself and uh, in throne of blood they, it's two scenes one scene is that uh, macbeth is told that you know uh, you know things will go bad when the forest is moving so one day he looks out at the horizon and trees through the fog, three, uh, trees are moving forward. And it's actually just the soldiers attacking that are carrying trees. So it looks like they're moving forward. But the way this looks cinematographically, <laughs> if, if there's such a word, uh, is amazing and uh, also the most important scene in this film is the ending when Macbeth is killed with hundreds of arrows he looks like a pincushion ne- well, you know where you put all the needles uh, and it's really well made, you know. It looks really realistic. And uh, he just gets bombarded with knee, uh, with arrow after arrow after arrow. 
and it's one of the best if not the best death scenes I've ever seen in a film so for that that for that scene alone you should watch Throne of Blood but watch it from the beginning to the end you know don't fast forward to the end you know try and watch the whole film because it's all about how it leads up to this point as well uh, yeah so uh, check it out Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa now to conclude this episode I'm going to play a track from the Nameless Archive album UK Pacha the track is called House and since this episode mentioned a bit about money and banks and stuff like that if you listen to the lyrics it has some relevance (laughs) You can check out more of Nameless Archive's music at namelessarchive.com. Also go to naturalbornalchemist.com for access to more content and links to the social media connected with this podcast. And if you don't have anything better to do, why not write a nice review on iTunes? Next Sunday is going to be the fourth episode recorded at the Altered Conference in Berlin. And I will be talking with the son of legendary psychonaut Timothy Leary. I hope you drop by for that. Or at least that you drop some acid. Freedom is in the mind. Fucking